everyone and welcome to the first episode of Tea with Coco, the European American from Coco Like Chanel. I originally started this podcast because I could think of so many incredible people who I would love to sit and talk to, and I thought that they were podcasts that I would want to listen to, the first of which was a very easy choice. Tammy Herr, I've had the absolute privilege of knowing since I was a little girl, now lovingly referred to her uh, first as Aunt Tammy and now as mom, because she really is. She had an absolutely amazing career at HP, Hila Packard, as an engineer, as a director, as a mentor. So this podcast was really about her life's journey, starting out as one of the only women in an engineering program to getting married, to getting hired at one of the largest tech companies in the world, and bringing it through the 80s, 90s, and all the way today. She pioneered and was the first woman at many different levels within the company, while at the same time being an amazing wife and mother. So here it is, the first episode of the European American Tea with Coco, an interview with Tammy Herr. Coming and being on my podcast. Of course. This is super exciting. I know. I knew you had to be the first person on the podcast because it just was right. Not only with your transitioning from being in this extraordinary career that we're going to talk about so you can actually look back and reflect as I'm sure you've been doing nice. Very with nice. retirement, um, but also just um, the political climate right now, mm-hmm. how much we've been talking about, about women and their, their life over the past, uh, you know, 30, 40 years. We've seen all this stuff in the news come, and I think even the entertainment, right? Mad Men and Good Girls Revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of brought a lot of light onto how it was and how it is now. Yeah, and what has and has not changed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? yes, yeah. And how so much has not changed, actually. Yeah, which is, I think, interesting, because a lot of times when we watch the shows, like, Good Girls Revolt or Mad Men, and you see, you know, men smacking the women on the asses, Mm and I am like, oh, well, that doesn't happen, you know, anymore. Mm -hmm. There's so much change. Um, But then a lot of the exclusion and misogyny and downplay and um, segmentation Mm -hmm. does still happen. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's, like, so interesting. I, I guess, you know, I just never feel like, you have had that long of a career and it was so funny to do research on you. <laughs> I'm interested to hear what you discovered. Did you Google me? I did. <laughs> I Googled you. Oh my gosh. Um, I Googled you. Uh, um, and um, Did I send you my resume? You didn't, but I found it on LinkedIn. Oh. I found your resume on LinkedIn. Okay. And I did not know that you started your career in 1980. Because yes. you must have graduated high school in 77? 76. Spirit 76. of 76. Spirit of 76. Mm-hmm. So were you still... Did you remember? <laughs> were you still in college getting your degree at UCSD when you started at HP? No. So I graduated from college in 1980, and shortly thereafter I started at HP. So I graduated in 1980... From UCSD, and I started in in mechanical engineering. How was Mm -hmm. being a woman in college in the 70s in a mechanical engineering program? 
So I was one of two or maybe three out of hundreds. And I was actually a math major, a dual major, a math and Spanish major at UCSD. Because, like a good girl, <laughs> I was going to be a teacher. Oh, and that was one of the only options we had. Exactly. Nurse or teacher. Exactly. <laughs> and because I loved Spanish and I'd taken it my whole life and I wanted to use it in my career, I thought, oh, I could, and I love math. I was the best at it. I thought, I'll be a math teacher in a bilingual classroom. And I live in San Diego. So I knew there were options for that. And in my third year of college, I went to a career fair, which I highly recommend anyone does at this day and age. And I talked to a counselor who asked me if I wanted to stay in San Diego to be a teacher because there were no jobs in San Diego. Uh, the job market was not good for teachers. And she said, you have all the requirements being a math major. In fact, you have the hardest requirements behind you, why don't you be an engineer? Was it something you hadn't even considered no. until then? Like, no. Because, quote, women weren't engineers? or Actually, I didn't know what an engineer did. I had no idea that there were engineers. Okay. So I'm being very transparent here. Okay. I was raised in a family with and four girls. And you had already been in school at that point for yes. a while. Yes. Three years. Three years. Three years. Three years. Yeah. And physics... Physics, I was the best, top of the class of all these guys, right? But it never hit me. There were other things I could do with my technical aptitude other than teaching math. And so when she asked me that, I was so embarrassed to say, I don't really know what an engineer does. And I didn't even know those jobs were out there. So what does an engineer do? And so she sent me. It was a woman, though. That it was, was a woman. It was a woman that was telling me this. And I said, do you think I could do that? Are there any other girls? And she said, number one, yes, you can do it. Look at your grades. Look at what you've already done in all the prerequisites. And number two, uh, there aren't any girls. There's, there's just a few. So you have to just be okay with that. But yes, of course you can do it. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I really want to get a good job. Maybe I ought to look at this. And sure enough, I had every single prerequisite but chemistry, which I hated, by the way. And so I went to summer school. That's the one. That's the one field I went. I couldn't have been a doctor. No. Memorizing all those periodic tables. Boring. So that summer, I went to San Diego State to take chemistry and get it off of my list. And I transitioned to engineering as my major. And actually, you know what? I misspoke. It was at the end of my second year of college that I switched majors because I was starting my upper division math classes that next fall. And it was in the spring where she asked me, you know, what I was going to do. And so I flipped majors essentially after two years. Right. And right after my sophomore year of college. And I flipped from a math major to an engineering major and uh, started engineering in the fall after having gone to summer school to get my chemistry a program out of the way. And yeah, I was pretty much uh, one of two or three girls who we immediately chummed up together. Right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. You got to get your posse. <laughs> got to get my posse, which I did. Yes, with Kathy and Anne Marie, the two, and Lisa. Actually, there were three Kathy, Anne Marie, and Lisa. 
and Anne-Marie was bioengineering. Kathy was actually math, and she was taking one of the courses, and then Lisa was uh, a good friend who we then became closer and partners in computer labs. Are you still friends with them today? No, not still friends today. No, you know, I'll see them on Facebook now and then, but no, we do not. We we did not stay close after college at all. Probably because I married my husband. You got married like right (laughs) in college. In college. Yep. In college. Yep. Yeah. So I got married between my junior and senior year of college, even though everyone told me, Tammy, do not do this. Do not get married to this guy. First of all, you haven't known him long enough. Second of all, you're still in college. Get your degree, get your job, think about it, and get married. And they were giving you that advice in the 70s? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's very modern advice, right? Like, yeah. that's something that they would have told me now, where a lot of times for women in the 70s, they mm-hmm. were like, it's your MRS degree. Right. Getting, right. Right. You're basically biding right. your time until you get married. Yep. But that wasn't what, who was telling you, like, no, don't get married? My friends, my girlfriends, my sisters. Uh, my mother had, had passed away, unfortunately, but it was still the voice in my head. She was, she was the one who told me time and time again, go to college, go to college, go to college. And make sure you finish college because she started college and then quit college because my father insisted upon it. And so she never finished her college and therefore really didn't have that um, opportunity or that experience. But, you know, people told me it was more so wait because you're too young. I mean, I was 20 when I got married. And they said, how do you know what you want? You're you're just too young to get married. And you're in college. Wait till you're out of college. How are you going to make it work? And And... And how are, who's going to make the money? And, you know, you got to go to college and you got to make a living. How are you going to make it work? Well, and this is what's so interesting about, I mean, because I know you guys, and obviously mm-hmm. you're about next year to celebrate 40 years yes. together. So, I mean, obviously it worked out. Yeah. But one of the things. It's still working out. It's still working out. We're working on it every yes. day. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things is right after college then, you went and kind of joined this, I guess HP was still a big corporate company at that time. Mm-hmm. They hadn't really gotten into the printer market yet and become no. this like world renowned brand. Correct. So in 1980, it was kind yes. of the beginning stages still. Yes. So you joined this little company and your husband who mm-hmm. graduated with the same degree yep. that you did. Same degree. What did he, like, how did you guys make those decisions? Like, I'm going to go and get a job. Was it just get any job? And, and how did you have those discussions yeah. to start off with? Well, so our, this is a funny story and I should probably try to make it succinct. <laughs> so when we got married. I can edit. Okay, good. Because we <laughs> were, it was just before our senior year. Okay. He actually had another quarter. So I graduated before he did. He graduated off cycle and he hated to go to college. He hated to go to the lectures and he was working doing construction and building a house at the time, one of his first houses for resale. And we right away, we knew our agreement was he works, I'll go to school. And actually, it was perfect because we every single class that we had was the same. So I went to all the lectures. He never went to a lecture. I took all the notes. Yes. 
I know people listening don't know this couple, but this yes. is still the way it is. When yes. You yes. Four years later, this yes. is all happened. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Continue. So he never went to a lecture. In fact, the professors, when the finals and the midterms came, he would show up and they'd say, excuse me, who are you? <laughs> I'm Tammy's husband. Oh, okay. I didn't know you were in this class. And they didn't make you go to lectures then, so he would just show up and I'd give him, I'd give him a brief before and I'd give him my one page of notes and formulas and I'd say, here's what you need to know. Here's the problems you can expect. He did great. He got so his in B a way, average. You were a teacher. Yes. In a way, I was a teacher. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly say I taught him. He would not say he, I let him. <laughs> let him. Let, he did not let me teach him. But it was a great agreement because I, I got to go to school full time while he earned the income. And I was very fortunate in that regard. And so it worked out famously. Because he got to do what he wanted to do. He got his B average. He was very bright. He still is. And so he picked it up quickly. I mean, not everybody could have, could have done, that. done yeah. that and learned it the way that he did. But he's a very, very fast learner. And I loved school. I loved it. I loved going to lectures and loved learning. And so it was a great arrangement. And then after I graduated, I knew I would get a job. Two, there were two places in San Diego, SAI. Uh, Science Applications Institute, and HP. And HP at the time was the only company to work for if you were an engineer. They were known for their engineering, for their culture, for their employee focus, uh, and they were the pinnacle. So I thought if I can get a job at HP, I will have died and gone to heaven. That's where everyone wants to go. Were there's like was there a subculture created around HP? Like I I think now when I think of that type of pinnacle pedestal tech company on the edge, mm -hmm. I think of like a Google or an Apple or something. Yes. Where where it was if you were young and yes. energetic and passionate, that's yes. where you went. That's it. And if you're an engineer. Engineer. It's an engineering company. Still is, even though I think we're still trying to bridge the marketing engineering divide and doing a better job at it. But it was an engineering company at heart. Bill and Dave, both engineers out of Stanford, and they were still alive when you oh, yeah. over. Oh yes, right? I met them. So it was yes. like big. Yes. The culture was still like their quote unquote culture. The Bill and they called it the Bill, Bill and Dave, Dave, you know, HP way. Yes, very much so. In 1980, then when you were hired as mechanical design engineer, yes, then you were you the only woman in your team? Yes, I was the only one in my team. Dee Setleft was the other woman on one of my projects. I worked on a couple different projects, and she was a software engineer. So I was the only mechanical engineer on my team. There was one other one, and her name was Kathy Brock. She became Kathy Schultz. Uh, we do we correspond still, and she was the other, the only other mechanical engineer in the R&D lab at the time. So yeah, in the R&D lab, I don't think there were any women in manufacturing engineering. But I went into research and development, which is very different than some of the other engineering disciplines that yeah. HP hired. And yeah, yeah, the, the, the one woman on the project. Well, what was it like? I mean, what, what was the culture being not only the fact that you didn't even know what an engineer was two years earlier, right? right? And right. now you're hired at this breaking edge engineering pinnacle company. Yes. Blonde haired, blue eyed, Southern California girl. Yep. Uh, with with a bunch of guys on the team, yep. uh, and how yep. was how was the interaction starting off in 1980? So it was uh, challenging. 
not as challenging, I think, as some people might uh, anticipate it would have been, but challenging because many of the guys did not take me seriously. And they, they did not necessarily embrace me or my style into their daily work life. And the examples that popped my are, uh, and at the time, remember, there's no computers, there's no cell phones, you know, when I went I to work. I can't really remember that. I know, <laughs> so you can't remember. But okay, a, a day in the life <laughs> of, the work, of work as a mechanical engineer is you show up, and I had a big drawing table. I saw where the picture. I did my designs. Mm-hmm. There's a phone that has the push buttons on it. And essentially, I would work designing uh, mechanical assemblies and parts and mechanisms at this drawing table. And we each had our own little bench. So I had my bench with all my tools in my toolbox, which, oh, by the way, I never owned a tool in my life. And so unlike most of the female mechanical engineers that I came across my entire career, more often than not, they had a mentor or they had a dad or they had an uncle. They had someone who they, they would work on the car with their dad or their dad would inspire them. And many times there was either a father or an uncle or family member who was an engineer and they got to experience that. I had absolutely no idea how to use a screwdriver. Okay. So I was the best at the theoretical aspects associated with being a mechanical designer, no doubt, both the electrical engineering, electromechanical theory, and so forth, but I did not know how to build things. And so I learned that on the job, and I have to say that about HP, is they taught me. They taught me, and they invested in me from day one, knowing, okay, this engineer doesn't have all of the hands-on experience because UCSD didn't provide it either. Now they do. But at the time, they didn't. It was highly theoretical. So I didn't have the hands-on experience. I had all the theory and everything else. And so the guys didn't know really how to deal with that, and many of them did not treat me very great. So one guy wouldn't even call me by my name. He'd call me Lady. (laughs) Hey, Lady. So, and we had to work together because our mechanical assemblies interfaced with each other. And he would call me lady. Um, One of the older gentlemen, I'll never forget, when I built my first prototype. So one of my initial designs was a uh, a vacuum plenum. And it was a a sheet feeder that would essentially feed sheets of paper. That's when we first started designing um, 8.5 by 11 instead of roll feed printers. And it was a single sheet feed mechanism that would hold the paper down while the pen went back and forth. So this mechanical assembly, I designed the parts, I leveraged from some engineers, I, I innovated my own, and, and I built my first prototype, and it was sitting on my bench. I got it up and running, and one of the older engineers came over, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, I guess you're not just another pretty face, are you? Oh, <laughs> I'll never forget it. And he said it. And he, he was, was kind. complimenting you. He was complimenting me, okay. But I thought, oh, so that's what you thought of me all this time. I kind of felt it, but no one ever said it. So it was that subtle, oh, okay, here's this girl who's coming in who obviously is only here because maybe she has a pretty face. I don't know. And it took a long, long time to develop credibility. 
And so there's no doubt. And it, by the way, this is through my 30 career, career, not just in the beginning. To this day. I still believe that. That as a woman, and I won't speak for other women, women, but as a woman, there are those stereotypes that we still have, unfortunately, in our culture, here in the U.S. in particular, where if you're not a guy, and unfortunately, sometimes if you're not a white guy, I'll be maybe stepping out a little bit saying that, but if you're not, you don't necessarily fit a stereotype of what that employee should look like or act like or dress like or talk like. Yeah. Right? And so for me, it was consistently prove myself and take a year sometimes to do that with, with some people or more. And then, you know, take a deep sigh of relief knowing, okay, great. Now in this role that I've been in, I've built my credibility. They understand I know what I'm doing. They know what my strengths are and they know I'm a great leader and, and, and I could relax a little bit, right? So honestly, within HP, each new role I assumed with new people to work with, I, I had the same thing every time, every time. Even your last role when you were a director, which mm -hmm. was a senior management position, like basically Correct. one, one rung yep. shy of VP. Correct. Right? Yeah. So, yes. And had 30 years with yes. the same company touching. Yes. And, and you went from doing like very tactile mechanical engineering stuff to being an account manager yep. into sales and then into the director position. So you actually transitioned completely away from where your major yep. happened to be oh, yeah. Um, yeah. into a completely different department. Um, and those are all skills that you learned through experience with the company, right? Yes. Yes. And HP is awesome from that perspective because I really did. I probably had a career that encompassed, uh, let's see, over 30 years, probably 10 different very different disciplines and roles that, that I never knew existed when I started there as an engineer. Never knew even existed. You know, those jobs, you ask people today, oh, what are you gonna major in? What do you wanna be when you get out? Well, most people don't know what's there or, or what kind of jobs there are. And so I, I sure wished I'd known more about the opportunities and the types of jobs that are there then. You do it took me decades. To learn that. Well, and I think it's interesting, even in when I started at, at HP, mm -hmm. you know, now almost four years ago, even my entire management was one woman all male. Yeah. And when you get closer and closer to the top, that's amazing. That gets even in the you know, this was four years ago. Yeah. And, and now I think she's moved on to a, a different one. So now I think it's back to, to all men. Yeah. Um in, in those upper management positions. And I think when I went to the sales training with you, mm -hmm. the first few months I was at HP in Dallas, we went, mm -hmm. you were the only woman on that stage. Yep. And not only because you have this beautiful blonde hair, but like, because you really stuck out. It was very apparent, like white guy, white guy, white guy, white yeah. guy, white guy. Maybe somewhat of a different culture. Boss who's Japanese. Yes. He used to remind people, hey guys, remember, I'm not a white guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then you. Yep. Yep. 
And I mean, so for years you felt it was, I'm going to use the word worth it or that there was enough there for you to stick out staying. And I know through some of the years, it hasn't always been easy uh, to constantly have to prove yourself. And this is something you and I have talked about as I've looked at different roles to move into um, both inside and and outside, um, you know, the company is I, and I think it's a female trait. I don't ever, I hate accepting a job or even looking at a job. I don't feel I'm 100% qualified yes. for. And how did you make that jump as you looked at these careers different than some of the men that you've seen um, progress with their company as well? Great question. So I was just thinking about this earlier today when you were, told me you were going to do this podcast. I was thinking about the phenomena whereby uh, Melissa, you know, yeah. my oldest daughter, she she told me, Mom, fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. Okay. And honestly, it's a very difficult thing to do. And probably it's across genders and, sure. and various different, um, you know, cultures too is I think it's our human tendency. You want to be really good at what you do. And so if you're learning a new vocation or a new role or a new job or anything else, it's a challenge because you fail more and you're not on the top of your game. And I'm a person who loves to be on the top of her game. And so, I mean, I had all A's from the time I left sixth grade. Okay. So perfectionism isn't always necessarily a positive trait, by the way. (laughs) My children would say that. but High standards being a little bit high, right? But honestly, overachieving, individual that I am, I had a hard time assuming new roles and then feeling like, okay, I don't know what the F I'm doing in this job. And I have to make it look like I do (laughs) and build confidence among my management team that I can learn it and I know what I'm doing. And so, you know, back to your question, how did I do that? It was hard. Jumping into new roles, it was really hard to do that and not go home every day and think, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a failure. I am, why did I do this? They, they must think I'm stupid. I must look stupid. Which is your worst possible worst nightmare. fear, right? Worst nightmare. She is stupid. Oh my gosh, right? She is a dumb blonde. After all, I do think that that is a gender bias. I do think I was constantly, and, and again, it's in my head. Most of this stuff's in our head, Right. I'm thinking, okay, they think I'm a dumb blonde. I'm going to prove them otherwise. So jumping to a new job, it's harder to do that because you don't know what you're doing. Did you actively go after other jobs or did people approach you? Both. Both. But you know what? Good question. Can I answer your other question, by the way? Good. I learned the hard way. I was typically recruited every single time I went into a new job. Every time they would recruit me and they'd say, Tammy, we want you to come work over here. We want you to go work on this. And I was the good girl. So, okay, I'll go do that. I'll go do that. And I didn't step back and say, what does Tammy want? What is Tammy really good at? Now, I'm not being egotistical here, but I am good at a lot of different things because I have this great aptitude, both technically as well as non-technically, to develop relationships with people. 
to be in a leadership position where I can communicate with non-technical. Which, especially for engineering, is not something that's innate for most engineers. It's not innate for many engineers. That is absolutely the case. And I also had a business aptitude. And so I had this, this diverse array of skills that enabled me to do multiple things, which means HP would pull me in different directions, depending on a couple different things. One, is there a need for my skills over there? And number two, do they need more women over there? So there were times I was recruited into departments where they were trying to build diversity. And I didn't ever step back and say, what does Tammy want? Hmm. What do I desire? What am I really passionate about? And what am I going to like doing? I didn't do that for a long, long time. And it wasn't until 10 years ago that I stepped back and I thought, you know, I don't really like what I'm doing. And I was a marketing director at the time. Okay. As I was a strategic planning and marketing director for the global inkjet business, huge job, you know, billions and billions of dollars every year in revenue. And I was responsible for the five-year plan. I was responsible for, you know, uh, all doing all the briefs for Mark Hurd at the time for every quarterly earnings. And I realized I stepped back and I don't really like what I'm doing because I am constantly working inside HP and never with a customer of HP. And I am really interested in actually going out there and getting outside of the HP umbrella. Yeah. Uh, or out from under it. And kind of seeing the world through the perspective of the customer, which is when I decided I want to go to sales. And I took a huge leap over a huge chasm from 25 years inside HP in global business units to working as a sales director. And I made the leap, and I was scared, but it was probably one of the first times in my career it was driven by me driving my career and me stepping back and saying, what am I happy doing? What am I going to like doing? What am I capable of doing and where can I build a skill that I don't already have and be okay with the fact that I need to build that skill and not already have it before I jump into the job and know that, oh yeah, I got that down. I can do this and take the risk. So I took the risk. And for a large part of your professional career as well, you and, and Steve, your husband, had an interesting dynamic in that you had this added weight of being the breadwinner. Exactly. Which not only were you a woman in a tech industry, which is already extraordinarily male dominated, still is to this day, but you had this added pressure of having to do well because you were the provider. Exactly. Exactly. And I knew the nice thing is I knew that Steve, he could, right? Worst comes to worst. He has skills, aptitudes, you know, both technical, non-technical, academic, Amazing. non-academic, right? He's like he the Renaissance it. man. He right. can do anything. So I, I mean, I, I was very fortunate that I knew I had a husband who could step in when and if needed. And I would tell him many years, I'd be like, okay, I need a break. And the problem was, I just made too much damn money. And, you know, I'm grateful for it. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm so grateful for the money that I made. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, HP, I feel like, you know, was a wonderful company, compensated me very well for what I did. But you're right. I got to the point where, oh, my gosh, yes, the the probability of Steve being able to bridge that gap as a result of where the income level was that I had achieved, uh, I realized, yes. And it's interesting how, you know, you make more, you spend more, you make more, you spend more, right? Well, you do. 
And mm-hmm. your your two wonderful daughters, who I yes. obviously love so much. Yes. They had very lofty. Three um, wonderful daughters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we had very high expectations for where we were going to go college and graduate schools and, and, you know, lifestyles and trips and, you know, wanting to provide that to, to your children, which I think for you would have been doubly interesting because nobody knows guilt like a mother. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh my gosh. And if you were the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and then Steve took on the role of house brow, (laughs) <laughs> yep. 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 Uh, of caregiver, you know, still like how how was it working in that climate when your when your children were small yeah. in the nineties, yeah, uh, late eighties, early nineties, and when you went back, um, you know, to HP and and how did you deal with being a mom and working and having to prove yourself both at home and at work all the time? Sometimes not very well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> How many crying episodes and guilt episodes and I'm a terrible mother and oh my gosh, I don't have the energy for this. How can I get through the day? I need more coffee. Um, it was, it was really, really challenging. Yes. To the point now where when young women ask me, okay, even, even my own daughters, you know, what should I do? I'm like, just be careful about how much you sign up for. And, and be clear about what your desires are and what your trade-offs are relative to what you're signing up for. So for me, I think the most challenging thing was traveling mm-hmm. while the girls were young yeah. and being on the road and leaving them. There was something about, okay, I can't be there to read them a bedtime story. It's one thing to be gone at work and come home and have an evening with your children and every weekend. But when you're missing weekends sometimes for traveling, not as many. HP, I I must say, I was very good about trying to hold that value of, I'm going to be home on the weekends with my kids, even if I'm traveling. And HP was good about enabling me at the time. Not anymore. No. That was the HP then. I'll be home Saturday night, (laughs) next Saturday. There you go. So see, you're experiencing that. I did not experience that. I was able to hold that for pretty much my whole career and say, if I'm traveling, I'm going to be home Friday night. And I won't leave until Monday morning. Now, granted, there were exceptions, for sure, right? International trips, especially. Yeah. But it was more the exception than the rule. So, you know, back to your question, how did I, how, what was it like? Uh, It was really hard. And not only was it hard, because in my own head, I struggled with, I'm not home with my kids like the rest of the moms. I live in Fallbrook. I live in a bedroom community where moms typically don't work. Mm -hmm. So brownie meetings, the Girl Scout meetings, the classroom volunteers, they're all moms, the parent-teacher conferences, moms, and the ballet lessons and the tap dancing lessons, moms dropping off, moms picking up, and so when Steve became the one doing this, it was hard for him too. You know, he's the oddball, and I'm the oddball, and my girls are the ones who don't have the perfect hair in the recital. You know, and I'm like, Steve, you're not going to do a but no. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm a terrible mother. All these other mothers are there. They're early. Their kids look perfect. They're all behaving perfect. And of course, a lot of that's in my head too. I tend to put so much in there myself, but it was, it was hard. And so, yeah, is it, 
I, I hope, I hope that for, for you, Coco, and, you know, women like you that choose to have families and try to do both and do them both well, I hope that the support systems are improved from what they were. And I do, I, I really do hope that the ability to have a career and be a mom and have that be okay, that you're not, oh, you're not at home with your kids, is becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, look at look at the executives out there, not necessarily at HP, there's a few, although Meg Whitman was CEO, right? That's right at the top, right? She has a family. Annalise. She has Annalise. She has a husband. Uh, basically, Meg did, who was a brain surgeon. Annalise, mom. she's another Single example. Mom. Single mom. So it's being done, and it's more accepted. I do think that today. Well, Annalise is just like, kind of the badass in general. She <laughs> she like used to be a DJ and has like tattoos mm-hmm. and she's like uh, she did a Fergie rap. I love thing. that. I you love know, that. Like I think I love know, that. Those are kind of like another blonde haired blue eyed woman by the way. Yes. Um, she is we're taking over. She is. She is. <laughs> um, I, I think it is, but what's I one of the things that I don't think has changed, which is what why I wanted to ask you that question is um, I think the women's guilt that it's mm. still something we should do yeah that it's still an expectation that our brownies are homemade for the bake sale yep. and you know that our everything's perfect and homework's checked yeah. and every that's all on the mom or they feel like it's all on their they shoulders feel, yes and then like i said again it's a lot of it's in our own heads and what was the book um cheryl sandberg wrote leaning in yeah right or lean in lean in lean, yeah. in lean in um i really liked that book and I've come to this conclusion in life. Life is an and function. It's not an or function. Anytime you ask yourself a question, well, was it, did this happen because of this or this? It's usually and. Mm-hmm. Multiple things contribute, right? So her, her thinking was, you know, women tend to limit themselves, right? That it's up to us. Because to lean in. We think everything is important. Like for a lot yes. of times in my head, yes. the like or we were talking about this with the what Alice forgot. Book, yes. Right? When you think yes. about ten years ago, yeah. where you know, you talked about your daughter's hair at the ballet recital. Oh. The fact that that is at the same importance level as you making your business meeting, Correct. come on. Correct. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're not. And honestly, do the girls really give a shit? Probably not. But why would they give a shit? Because I gave a shit. Right. And then all of a sudden they started giving a shit and then they thought, oh, my hair is not as nice as the other girls and mom feels bad about it. So I feel bad about so it. It's so, so it's so wrong. So something's wrong. So part right. of that I induce myself, you know, with the girls. And so, yeah, I, I think I, I do hope that there's more education, more support and more awareness of women today that it's okay if there's not a perfect dinner. It's okay if the schedules aren't always met, you know, and and, and balls get dropped, you know. Are, is your family safe? You know, is, is anyone, like, at the hospital? <laughs> Those are true traumas. Yeah. But the rest of it doesn't matter. If the kids have macaroni two nights in a row, yeah. like, yeah. you're not a bad mother. Right. Because the women that are in my life now, um, that our mothers mm-hmm. have that exact same guilt. And mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're talking about women who have MBAs. I'm talking about my sister who is, you know, this amazing badass woman now running, a, you know, her own department yes. in South Africa um, for PEPFAR. 
still has, she had a discussion with me last year. Should she go for the directorship because she knew she was pregnant? Yeah. And it's, it was 2017. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we think that we've made this huge progression and that women can feel empowered to do whatever they want. Yeah. But it's, it's really, we're still asking ourselves those questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And part of that, those are good questions to ask because not everybody is designed for or intends to, nor would they like being a corporate executive. No. Some women love being home with their kids, right? I personally, I love having both. And my best situation was the job share, I have to say, when the kids were young. It didn't last long enough for various different reasons. But that was great. It is really hard to work a full-time corporate executive role and be a parent at the same time. There's no doubt about it. And unless you have that other parent who can pick up the slack and do everything else from the cooking to the cleaning to the grocery shopping to the scheduling to the errand running to kids are sick, who's going to stay home with them this time, it's a lot to do. It's an awful lot to do. And there's no doubt, I think, unless someone's done it, you, you probably think, oh, is it really that much time? It's that much time. It's a full-time job. I, I believe that. I believe that. So when there's two people working full-time and there's a full-time, let's make sure the kids are taken care of and raised, like we want them to be raised, job, that means there's three jobs and there's two people to do them. So to me, the best thing was for Steve and I both. Either he was not working 120%, let's face it, jobs today are 120%, they're not 100%. Absolutely. Forget about a 40-hour week, right? And so if you're both at 120%, something's going to fall through the cracks. It's usually the kids who don't necessarily have the parenting time that they deserve. So for us, either Steve was working part-time or in a job that wasn't demanding and I was doing the 120% or vice versa. There was a time I left HP for six years. Right. To be home with the girls, you know. And I worked part-time and he worked the 120%. And then when we moved to Germany, um, switched right back. Then I worked 120% part-time. So we went back and forth. And even the job share at HP was awesome because it enabled me to work the 60%, 70% while he worked 120%. So we found that, and it's a kind of an engineering way to approach it mathematically. <laughs> okay. It's the mathematical part coming out of me. But the fact is, yes, when you put time frames on it, you say, okay, I'm going to work 70. You're going to work 120. We're at 190% here, right? So yeah, we can do that. But when you're both 120%, you got 240% you got to put in. And then who's going to take care of the family, you know? So I loved the job share. I loved the times like in Europe where Steve was able to focus on the family. That's where you, you yeah. know, you like became our third daughter, you know. know. And he was my Girl Scout troop leader. I told him yes. last night, took me to my orthodontist appointment. I yep. drove us to soccer and yep. play rehearsal. And yep. I mean, if he hadn't been there to do yeah. all of that, yeah. I, I don't My teeth probably would still be crooked. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And you wouldn't be the person you are. I would not be the Nor person. would Melissa, nor would no. Megan. Absolutely not. And so in retrospect, as I look back, I think how wonderful they had a father. You all had a father yeah. 
who, by the way, a lot of girls today don't have a father figure. Many of them, right? I never had one. And so... Talk about someone who taught us how to use tools. He taught us how to use tools. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. And so, and I shouldn't say I never had a father figure. I did, but not to the extent that Steve has been a father to girls. And so, honestly, what a perfect situation that was. And I loved the time while we were there because there was balance. So I think it just, it comes to balance. If people overuse the word, you know, make sure you're in balance. But that's pretty much well, a very true. an interesting point you brought up because when I, when I talk to a lot of my friends that have kids, this idea for balance in their mind is their kid is happy and they're not going crazy. Right. Like they're not locking themselves yep. in the bathroom to cry. Yep. That's their idea of balance. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I remember one time, um, I must have been 12, and you were, you know, working at HP in Germany, mm-hmm. and we watched um, Coyote Ugly. Oh, and um, you went upstairs then and yeah. started writing songs and writing, you know, playing on your guitar. You're a fantastic musician, very extraordinarily talented at, at multiple instruments. Um, but I, you know, before that, had never really seen you cultivate that part of yourself. You mm-hmm. kind of pushed that aside. Yes. And, you know, locked that away because you were focusing on these, these other parts and you being the personality type you are, you want to be the best executive, the best cook, the best musician, the best mom, the best writer, you know, all of, you know, the best cleanly, it's just like, you know, in shape, you know, spiritually balanced, physically balanced. So it's hard when you use that word balance, Mm -hmm. like how do you actually with being a woman wanting to prove yourself, having to, throughout your career, you said, prove yourself over and over and over again, yeah. always starting off at stage yeah. one. Yes. How do you actually still cultivate those other things that are important to you? Yeah. Sometimes better than others. And when I think about the energy that I have expended during times of imbalance mm. and frustration and emotional turmoil... Like something up and down the stairs? Yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I think, oh my gosh, okay. I did not have to expend all that energy that I expended. I could have been a lot more efficient with energy, you know. Hashtag engineer. (laughs) This is not an efficient use of my energy. Totally. So the balance, how did I do it? Well, I think that's where my spiritual life comes in. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt. I believe, my belief system is that there is a power greater than me, that when I tap into that greater power, people call it God, people call it the universe, some people, you know, associate exclusively with Jesus Christ, some with Muhammad, some with Buddha, some with, you know, as a Hindu, you name it, Um, with Gandhi, Mother Teresa, uh, I tap into that. I absolutely tap into the spiritual power that enables me to have more energy in order to do what I need to do. Then when I don't tap into that, I do sometimes fall apart. I lose my balance. So for me, daily meditation, daily prayer, and staying close to that energy source that's bigger than mine as a human being enables me to maintain the balance. There's no doubt that's a big factor. Not the only factor, but a big factor in being at peace. And you told me once, and I think for, for me, this is absolutely true that the 
biggest fights you had with your husband throughout the years have been about the division of labor. Absolutely. Oh, and we just had another one. <laughs> oh, you're going to love this, Coco. Oh, okay. I didn't show you my spreadsheet. Oh, okay. So the latest spreadsheet I created, <laughs> at least it only has one tab. This color-coded spreadsheet, okay, is a list of all the roles and responsibilities that Steve and I have in our life today. Okay. Can you believe I'm doing this? Yes, I'm going to be 60. I'm going to be freaking 60, and I'm making a list of roles and responsibilities. This is me. Okay, I've accepted it. But what happened was we got in this huge fight about what is getting done and who's doing it. And I forget what Steve said. He said something like, well, I thought you were going to, uh, you were kind of slow to pick up the rental business. Something like this. Oh, <gasps> I know. Was he calling you stupid? No. Inadequate? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't tell me I was slow to pick something Devil. up. This is not me. I'm an achiever. I always overachieve and always deliver more than is expected. So <laughs> I was devastated. And, and then he, he said something about, I forget what else it was that I, he wished I was doing that I wasn't because he said, I thought our agreement was we were going to swap roles here, right? Which means... He's taking over, produced the majority of the income. Now he's the primary breadwinner. Yeah. And I'm doing everything else. Well, yeah. When you and I first went a couple of weeks ago, you said you hadn't been into a grocery store. No, I hadn't. Years. I hadn't. And by the way, on retrospect, I think, damn, when we reversed roles and he said, you go work at HP, I'm going to do everything else. I went, okay. And I thought, oh, I probably should have done more dishes. <laughs> Now you're paying for I'm it, totally right? paying for it. Just this morning, you weren't up yet. I went, honey, can you think you could help with the dishes? I hate this job. And he did. Me too. Yeah. Oh. So I absolutely I hate, hate the dishes. Hate that is one of my huge regrets. I yeah. should have been doing the dishes while he was doing everything else. Now I did do them. Now respect. But back to the spreadsheet. So he made these comments, and I went, okay, fine. I will. Make it very clear who's doing what. And I made this huge spreadsheet of all the responsibilities that need to get done in our daily lives. And oh, by the way, our kids are grown up. We don't have children. We don't have pets. And so, okay, now we do have elders. We do. Who now we're caring for. And so honestly, in some ways, it's like having children again, Absolutely. which is another interesting transition in life. And so I made my list. And I put down, okay, who's handing off to whom? What am I assuming role? Uh, the ownership for, what is he assuming ownership for? And we never have looked at the list. I said, honey, let's talk about the list tonight. No, I don't want to look at your list. We haven't used it yet, okay? <laughs> well, it's a tool to manage expectations, right? Which you have all these years of management experience. It's much easier for you to point to it and saying, well, yes. this is the one you didn't do. And we agreed upon this list. And Correct. here it is. And it's empty. And yes. you were saying to take. Exactly. And oh, by the way, here's what I'm assuming responsibility and for. All and they're all ticked. And here's the other thing that I'm continuing to do that I used to do before we switched roles, which means we're not doing an even swap. You do what I did. I'll do what you do. So you're exceeding expectations. Exactly. You're deliverable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I should get a good rating. Exactly. And I should get more pay. Oh, wait a minute. No one's paying me to do the dishes or the cooking or anything else except for obviously the rental business, which is a whole nother transition to go through. But back to your question. 
We, the division of labor, oh my gosh, and Melissa told me this, I've talked to Megan about it too, and you, in a marriage, it generated that, it, between finances, religion, and who does what job, it generates a lot of conflict and a lot of tension unless there's clarity of responsibilities, really, and respect for each other's difference of opinions when it comes to other things of the world, including politics and religion and everything else. So Steve and I, we, we were actually patting ourselves on the back and we were about how great we were at switching roles to these roles that were non-conforming to our societal norms. Yeah. When I'm now the breadwinner and he's the one being responsible for all the domestic chores, and that was hard enough on both of us, including him, and especially him, right, uh, in this world that we live in. Yeah. Right? We judge the man. He's not manly enough. Correct. Which is funny because he's so manly and, like, totally. that, you know, works with his hands and yes. builds things and, you know, Absolutely. fixes everything. Yes. Like, he, you know. I know. Can lift and, you know. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and he used the word subservient the other day. He goes, well, now, remember when I was in the subservient role, I started up. I'm like, okay, let's just, and that's the other thing that usually in a relationship, it's all about words and terminology and you say one thing and the person thinks you mean something else. And how else. they take it. How they take yeah. it. Oh my God. I mean, cause I definitely make more than Charles and yes. was a single breadwinner yes. for a while. Right? Yes. And that definitely took a toll on our relationship. It does. And, and so subservient. And I told Steve, I said, you have never been subservient a day in your life. Let's just get that clear. Okay. <laughs> We're not, not talking to the about U.S. government and not to exactly. me. <laughs> exactly. So we're not talking about subservience. We're talking about roles in our, in our relationship that our society have deemed, quote-unquote, subservient. Yeah. You know? So but are all like, housewives subservient, let's see? Is well, that what you're saying? Well, there you go. Oh, right? And it is a stereotype. So we, made, we, we got clear on that. No. He, and he did grin. He didn't laugh, but he grinned when I told him you've never been subservient a day in your life, which is true. So he did use that word though. And we did talk about this division of labor that we're in today and how we were really pretty good at figuring out how to do it. It took so much out of both of us to switch into roles that were completely non-conforming to society that made it very hard for both of us to continue yeah. in those roles and feel like we had a support system and weren't judged. Um, but now we just swap back, okay? And I'm the one who's not the primary breadwinner. And I think we're doing a pretty badass job, I must I say. I mean... And we still have our arguments about it now and then. And we're both learning. It's all about learning, right? Every day. But we're both learning, okay, this is my new role. I don't get the recognition I used to. I don't get a paycheck. I don't have someone saying, oh, Tammy, you're the best manager I've ever had in my life. Wow, thank you for that. I, I get none of that recognition. It went away. Step function, knife edge, gone, right? And now, all of a sudden, everything else I do, no one's saying, wow, Tammy, you did a really good job on that dinner. Oh, wow, you went to the grocery store. <laughs> Look how good and you, you did. all these things. Yes. Look at this cauliflower. Yes. <laughs> Look what I'm trying to do. I'm like trying to optimize that now and overachieve. I'm like, I'm going to go to the farmer's market and I'm going to cook healthier. And I'm going to get the best buy and I'm going to save money on the budget, which, oh, by the way, I haven't done yet. And I thought I had. <laughs> it's, the it's the wine. It's the wine. 
Yes. It kills the budget every time. Well, so, that's, you know. that's really Steve's fault, if you think about it. That's true, of course. <laughs> of course. But, but yes, the division of labor in the relationship tied to, tied to the recognition of each contribution as being meaningful to the relationship without bringing in societal norms that we've all been raised to live by. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this first part of our interview with Tammy Herr, part two to come. Laissez le bon temps relay and have a great day.